Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesselin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. On Miranda Warnings today, we have Ed Walters. Welcome, Ed. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Ed is the CEO of Fastcase, a legal publishing company based in Washington, D.C., and he is also an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Law Center and at Cornell Law School, where he teaches the law of robots, a class about the frontiers of law and technology. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the law of robots with Ed Walters. Again, thank you, Ed, for being here. Ed, establish for me and our listeners that you're not a robot. (laughs) Uh, I can sing a song or something totally unexpected, but... uh talking to me for a few minutes will make it very clear that uh, there's nothing programmed about. Ed, I, I think, you, you know, it's funny. I think you, you proved the point with your first response, which was involuntary laughter. Um, <laughs> robots can be programmed for many things, um, but it's the involuntary laughter that uh, I think we don't, that helps uh, establish someone as a sentient being. Um Let's talk a little bit about just where we are uh, with uh, what the law of robots is. Yeah, so the law of robots is really a class about how we uh, govern robots, how law should deal with robots, um, and the sort of conflict about how to regulate things that are new. So uh, there's a school of thought that says that there's really nothing new under the sun. We just use common law, and we apply this law to new facts and let the chips fall where they may. Where you need new law, you know, uh, Congress can make it, state legislatures can make it, agency regulators can make it, but there's nothing, there's no real challenge to it. You simply apply the law of the facts. Uh, There's a separate school of thought that says, look, you know, sometimes you do that and the results are perverse. It's it's where all of the uh, kind of exceptions to rules come from in law. And... Uh, you know, so there may be times where we have to create new laws to deal with new facts. Well, and so the question, yeah, why don't you give us an is, example of where what's a situation where, you know, the traditional principles of law that we have in place currently uh, would not apply when we have, you know, an autonomous agent uh, such as a you know something robotic uh, being involved. Yeah. Well. If you don't mind, maybe I'll just give like kind of a classic example. Sure. So I think the the classic example of this is Olmstead versus United States. So in Olmstead, uh, you have a bootlegger and the bootlegger um, is selling alcohol during prohibition. The FBI um, asks for permission to go into the basement of his building uh, and they get it. They put a wiretap into the phone lines. Uh, and capture 775 pages of transcripts of him buying and selling bootleg liquor. So they prosecute him, and the uh, defense lawyer moves to exclude the evidence, saying that it was a violation of his Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, And this went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice Taft writes for the majority, and he says, you know, we simply apply existing law to new facts, Um, Our Fourth Amendment doctrine has always said that uh, a violation of the Fourth Amendment requires trespass. And so 
in this case, the FBI didn't enter uh, Olmstead's place of business. They never trespassed onto his physical property. Therefore, there's no violation of the Fourth Amendment. And Justice Brandeis says, yes, that is the routine application of our Fourth Amendment doctrine. However, this wiretap sort of exposes a latent tension in our Fourth Amendment. You know, there'll be all kinds of things in the future where you can really intrude on people's privacy, their their rights to privacy, their rights to be secure in their persons, papers, and effects that won't involve a physical trespass. This is a great example of that. And so our doctrine needs to change. Uh, and so this is that conflict between applying existing law in a kind of a formulaic way or having new facts like sort of expose a latent conflict in the law that requires a change. And, you know, and eventually the Supreme Court in Katz adopts Brandeis's uh, formulation of the Fourth Amendment, saying it doesn't require like a physical trespass. And so that's that's sort of the, the things you'll see with, um, for example, autonomous cars. Imagine um, a self-driving car with nobody in it um, that uh, has a police car trailing behind it, asking it to pull over. There's no one in the car that knows to pull over. There's no law saying that a self-driving car even has to pull over. So I think in the traditional sense, you would say there's no violation there, but we probably want the self-driving car to pull over. So it might require new law. Yeah, so I think you, you know the example you gave uh, where Brandeis applied the Fourth Amendment to uh, wiretapping, uh, which has since been expanded, of course, to, you know, cell phones or you know sticking a monitoring device underneath someone's car uh, right. doesn't that really sh show though that the you know the laws that we have in place can and and should be applied uh, and that we don't necessarily need a new law that uh, judges jobs of course are to apply the 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 law to the facts uh, as they are at hand and the facts are as varied as uh, people are. And so we're always going to have new facts and we're always going to have something where there's not an exact precedent on all fours for, and the job of judges is to, um, you know, find a way to, to apply the law that's, uh, that's been set in the past and ap apply precedent to the new facts. Is, why is it so different now that we have uh, work because we're involving, you know, robotics or technology this is something that the law has done for years. Yeah, and you know, I think that there's a there's a real exercise for uh, a lawyer's lawyer to find good ways to analogize new facts to old ones. So, with uh, machines that exhibit kind of emergent behavior, where they act in ways that are unexpected, you see judges now who are starting to say, and lawyers who are starting to argue that we should treat machines like a dog, right? or like a child or a pet or something. Uh, the first time a machine exhibits like unexpected behavior, you might not be on the hook. The second time it does, you're on notice and you might have liability. Every robot gets uh, one free bite. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting as a, as a kind of a teacher and as a lawyer to sort of help young law students to think in exactly this way. For well, that's, many, I mean, many, that's many a typical cases, standard of, right? I mean, isn't that a typical standard of, uh, let's say, tort responsibility that, you you know, it's not strict liability, but there's, you have to have reasonable notice. It could be something as simple as whether there's, you know, snow outside your, you know, front walk or, or uh, 
a floor is slippery inside a, a supermarket, um, if they have reasonable notice, then they have to take action. And the same thing would be said for computers or machines uh, as well. No, I think that's I think that's right. But so it's it becomes a lot more complex when machines start to make the decisions that people used to. So you'll have a lot of uh, hard issues, I think, around autonomous cars, for example, um, where it's kind of hard to know where responsibility lies using traditional metrics for it. You know, uh, or even if we can use traditional principles, it'll be hard to apply them to these facts. Well, let me so, ask you this, because so, autonomous cars obviously is something that we're, you know, uh, is current. Uh, maybe it's not widely used, but it's something that we certainly have the capability of it being more widely used in, in uh, the, the not so distant future. If if there was an issue of someone becoming injured, let's say, because of an autonomous car, how would that be different than traditional principles of products liability that we apply to other machines? So a machine does something that, uh, you know, harms someone, uh, maybe on an assembly line, et cetera, uh, because of some programming or some defect uh, products liability would apply. Why wouldn't products liability apply to the manufacturer of of an autonomous car? Well, I think it probably would. the The question is really, what happens if we have to apply products liability principles to every automobile accident in a self driving car world, right? Because a products liability case is way harder to bring, way more expensive to bring than a standard negligence case, right? If, if today, if someone's hit by a car. You bring a negligence case, a trier of fact can decide whether the conduct was reasonable or not, whether it was negligent or not. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to bring that case or pretty easy to bring that case to a jury. It doesn't cost a ton of money. And hmm. so for a you know, $10,000 injury, a $20,000 casualty, you can bring a negligence case and get a recovery. But, you know, if you have $20,000 worth of damage because of a self-driving car, you know, imagine trying to bring a product's liability case to get recovery. You know, against Google, right? I mean, that's going to be impossible. And so you could end up, you know, sort of thwarting the principles of tort law that people get recovery in cases like that just because it's hard proof, just because it's expensive to bring a products liability case uh, because of expert witnesses and difficult, uh, you know, issues of establishing the fact, getting us out of black boxes and the like. We do have some some laws in place, though, when we're talking about automobile accidents, no fault, there's no fault insurance. I would assume that even a self-driving car would have to have the same insurance regulations. We have, you know, there's standards of common law that if, you, if you're, you know, driving behind someone and rear-end them, that, uh, that there's a, a, a finding of liability for that, uh, regardless of the circumstances. Wouldn't that apply also to self-driving cars? All those rules? They, they would, but I, I guess the question is, should they? So, like, imagine for a minute that, uh, you know, in in the circumstance where two people are driving with two different cars, I think it's a reasonable, rebuttable presumption that the person who is driving behind is responsible for the accident. But now imagine that the same company is responsible for both cars, or they're both operating on the same network. You know, should that same presumption apply or not? You know, when, when all the cars on the road are networked, you might want to move much more aggressively towards a no-fault insurance scheme than we do today. You know, another hard question is, uh, 
uh, right now we have 100 people a day die in automobile accidents. It's not widely publicized, but it's like one of the leading causes of death in America. Uh, something like 37,000 people a year are killed in automobile accidents, 90 plus percent of them caused by human error. So uh, as we move more into autonomous cars, most people believe that number will go down. Uh, some people believe in the early years as much as half of the deaths caused by human error will be avoided. And, you know, at the same time that we save, you know, 18, 20,000 lives per year, we're going to have a whole other series of uh, uh, casualties caused by accidents that self-driving cars cause that people would be able to avoid. I think about the, the Tesla accident where the Tesla is on autopilot and drives head on into a white box truck right. because to the sensors, it looked like the sky. So the car never breaks at all. Right. Uh, or the tragedy in Arizona where the person steps out into the road and the self-driving uh, uh, Uber hits it. Right. Hits the person and, and kills them. And these become very publicized. Right. Uh, and any our kind of human instinct about it is, oh my gosh, this accident could have totally been avoided. This is a this is a tragedy. But we don't think about the you know seven accidents or ten accidents or ninety nine accidents that the car would avoid. And so we we want to make sure that we are compensating the victims of negligence, but doing it in a way that you know promotes innovation and gets these cars on the road to save the twenty thousand lives even maybe at the cost of a thousand lives. If we could save 17,000 lives a year um, net, we probably want to do that, but we want to make sure that we're doing it in a smart way. Well, you know, when we talk about changing the law, we all know that even under ideal circumstances, uh, the legislatures move slowly uh, and sometimes uh, not always uh, accurately with respect to what the issue is. And when we compound that with technology, which uh, sometimes is changing very rapidly, uh, oftentimes, you know, a change in a technological function can occur faster than certainly a legislature can act, um, it becomes even more difficult. And you teach uh, in your class something called Moore's Law, which talks about how technology technology changes occur. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Moore's Law is and why it's so important? Yeah, so it's uh, it's named after Intel co-founder Gordon Moore, who said in 1965 that the number of transistors you could fit on a silicon chip would double every two years, and the cost of it would be cut in half about every two years. And at the time, people said, you know, Gordon, that's cute. That's a great description of what's happened from 1960 to 1965. But it won't be true for more than like another two or three years. But in fact, that has been the law since 1965. Um, every couple of years, we say we're reaching the physical limits of Moore's Law. You can't make the chips any smaller. They, the unit economics don't, uh, won't allow you to make them half the price. And then, you know, scientists come up with some new breakthrough. And the, the machines keep getting smaller and smarter and faster. And so we, we tend to think about things growing along a kind of a linear line. It's the way flowers grow or the way people learn things. 
grow over time in a very, very, very linear way. When things double every year, they take on this growth curve that is exponential, not exponential meaning like really fast, exponential meaning it doubles to the point where the growth curve almost goes vertical. And so machines have the ability to change very fast in a way that is counterintuitive. And let me just say one thing about that, Dave. So this class is called the law of robots, but it's really a class about change. When, when law students graduate today, they will graduate into a world that changes much faster than the world that you and I graduated from law school into. And there aren't law school classes that say, here is the way that you should think about law in a world that changes very quickly. Um, if you look at past revolutions, like the Industrial Revolution, the world changed very, very fast and the law didn't. And the consequences of law not changing were terrible. You know, you had, after the Industrial Revolution, it would be 100 years before you saw laws dealing with, um, you know, minimum wage or maximum hour, before you had child labor laws or sweatshop laws, before we abolished slavery, for Pete's sake. Laws lag behind that revolution was catastrophic, right? That 100 years uh, was ruinous. And so the idea behind the law of robots is take one specific topic that changes pretty quickly and teach law students how to think about a world that changes very quickly, how to regulate in a world that changes quickly, where we don't need to create new law, where we might want to think about new regimes, think about who makes the law, and think about you know, who's at the table when you make the law. Because they'll be graduating into a world that changes very quickly, and we need to equip them to think about that in a, in a proactive way. You know, Ed, that's uh, you, you know, obviously very uh, uh, interesting. And you can see the conflict that we have when we're applying something like technology, which, as you've pointed out, is increasing exponentially, and the law, which is really based upon precedent. I mean, some of the things that we do as lawyers is ba are based on laws that are, you know, literally hundreds of years old, and uh, or or common law that's even even older, and yeah. everything we're taught in law school is about precedent and applying precedent, uh, and we're applying, you know, to our society today, we're applying, you know, uh, the Constitution that's uh, over 250 years old. We're, you know, we're applying the Second Amendment uh, to uh, issues regarding gun control now, um, where we have, you know, automatic weapons uh, that are in controversy. And, and when, you know, the Second Amendment was written, uh, you know, all we had was muskets. Uh, and so you couldn't possibly contemplate the uh, issues that we have going forward. So the ability to uh, think about how we apply the law to a, tech a technology that's going to be changing, not just for today, but how it's going to apply two years, five years, ten years. That's right. And this is not like a flying car topic, right? We are surrounded by robots every day. They patrol our borders. We have surgical robots. If you know someone who has had prostate cancer surgery, chances are pretty good it was done by a Da Vinci robot. Uh, they trade all of our stocks. Machines are driving our cars already today. They're already on the roads in six states. And so these machines are all around us and they are 
growing in their capacity very, very quickly. They fly our airplanes and we don't even think about it. You know, we're surrounded by these machines and we don't even notice them anymore. While they're changing very quickly around us, our law barely changes at all. Let me ask you, Ed, uh, I'm going to ask you to make a, a prediction and, and look into a crystal ball. What is the area of law that we're going to most immediately see a, uh, a legal problem with based upon how it's currently in place compared to what's going on with technology? Hmm. Uh, it's hard. Can I give you a couple? So my canary in sure. the coal mine is autonomous trucks. Uh, I think over-the-road long-haul trucking is going to be like you know radically transformed for at least like the 90% of the road between cities. So we'll probably have to have some sort of a regulation that requires a person to be in the cab uh, to drive the trucks through cities or to make sure there's no malfunction. But I mean, you know, five years from now, we'll have the right lane of every interstate highway in America be a 10 mile long convoy of long haul trucks driving exactly the maximum speed limit three inches away from each other. Hmm. You know, and what do you do with that? If you have to exit, <laughs> and there's only a right exit. There's no law saying that there has to be a break in the convoy every mile. You know, we're going to have to deal with that. We're going to have to deal with the job displacement. Uh, for 37 states, the most populous occupation is truck driver. Uh, there's almost 4 million truck drivers in the United States. Those jobs are gone. And it's not like you can say, like, we're going to retrain truck drivers to be computer scientists or something, right? How do you How do you deal with job displacement at that very large level. So I think that is going to, that's going to require um, some policy solutions. I don't know if it's going to require changes in law, but I think that we need to start being proactive and thinking about that uh, right away. Uh, the second thing is search and seizure. Uh, this is not necessarily specifically robotic, but I think there's some real challenges we're seeing right now in the third party doctrine, the idea that you don't have a fourth amendment right to things that you surrender to a third party now everything we do from our computers to our phones uh, to the alexa devices in our houses are surrendered to third parties google amazon uh, box uh, microsoft and so i think we have an expectation of privacy in these things but the law would probably say that we don't have a privacy in them because we are surrendering it to a third party yeah that's very interesting you know we talked about the case you talked about initially uh, about uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment and the right to, to uh, privacy. And, you know, we're seeing now that uh, individuals are uh, voluntarily giving up their right to privacy in exchange for the convenience of having a cell phone or the convenience of having a, you know, a device like uh, Siri uh, answer questions where you have, uh, you know, a, a computer that's on you and with you that is recording almost everything that you do, where you go, sometimes what you say. Uh, and all of that is something that uh, has a potential uh, privacy issue that, that it's not the government secretly uh, trying to gain information, but it's, it's the individual society giving up that information uh, for, you know, a, a, a video clip on, on YouTube. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Would you, would you consider the same thing for a self-driving car for the convenience of added safety and, 
being able to read the newspaper while you ride the car into work instead of driving it? Do you give up all of your Fourth Amendment rights for people knowing where your car is at all times or where you drove or how you got there? Um, all of the data that is sort of digital exhaust from the car might be considered surrender under the third party doctrine. There's a lot of places where we'll just have to make some some hard calls. Um, and the third, I would just say, is around uh, personhood, which is uh, maybe a little bit overblown. We, we sometimes think about personhood as giving, uh, you know, robot citizenship. I don't think it needs to be that that extreme. You know, we have artificial persons right now. They're called corporations. And we have all kinds of rights that are respected for corporations, like First Amendment rights uh, of corporations. This is the controversy behind Citizens United. And, uh, you know, if, if we respect the First Amendment right of corporations as kind of artificial persons, uh, when do we necessarily have to think about machines having rights? Maybe not positive rights, you know, like the right to vote, but maybe negative rights. When we say Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, that's a restriction on Congress that we respect, both as to people and to corporations. Would you respect a similar limitation of Congress's power with respect to machines? Well, well with question. respect to machines, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't they uh, any machine be uh, just uh, uh, projecting something that was programmed by a person? Um, much like a, you know, a amplified microphone would be uh, projecting something that an individual said in the town square. Wouldn't, wouldn't similar principles apply? If I wanted to say something about the government uh, orally standing on this town square, or if I wanted to say it via a, a computer device, wouldn't I have the same rights to do that? Well, I think that's true if you tell the machine exactly what to say. The, the hard part with robots is emergent behavior, where they start to say things that you didn't program them to say. When you say, I want you to think really hard about uh, gerrymandering, and I don't care what the outcome is, just tell us what you think at the end. And the machine starts to create like emergent thoughts or ideas that it expresses, you know, would Congress's ability to silence that speech if it's not directed by a person, uh, be inside the scope of the First Amendment or outside the scope of the First Amendment. You know, it's it's so it's same thing with uh, with things like copyright. Uh, you know, we had a interesting case a year ago called Naruto versus Slater, where um, a uh, a gorilla basically took a photographer's camera and took a selfie of himself, and the photographer sold the picture and. Uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals sued saying you didn't take the picture you can't copyright it you know uh, Naruto the, the monkey actually owns the copyright in this so you have all these machines right now that are creating things like music um, or uh, writing articles if you read an article on Yahoo News about the stock performance of a company written by software 90% of baseball articles right now are written by uh, software called Quill by Narrative Sciences that reads the box score and then writes a complete article about the baseball game. If I read that article, can I just rip it off? You know, or does the person who uses the software have a copyright interest in it, even if they're not technically the author? 
there's all these questions about boundary conditions between people and machines that we don't necessarily know where which side of the line they're going to fall on do we treat them like a toaster uh, when they write articles for the new york times or do we treat them like a person or is there some middle category that sort of fits the bill well very interesting uh ed i appreciate your time being here uh, today and, and raising all these, uh, you know, very challenging issues that we're facing, we're starting to face now and that I think will will continue. And uh, I'm, I'm sure your class at, at Georgetown and, and Cornell uh, addressing these things and, and making uh, law students think about where we go here uh, will help make uh, the legal profession better and uh, help uh, attorneys better guide uh, where uh, how we address uh, these issues of technology. So thank you, Ed. We have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie, where you can share a performance that you've, uh, you're familiar with that you'd like to share with the group. It can be related to this topic or something else. Is there something else you want to share with us in that regard, Ed? Um, I am really enjoying rereading Kevin Kelly's The Inevitable, which is a great book about uh, trends going forward, driven by the structure of things today. He was the executive editor of Wired Magazine for years. It's fantastic. Um, uh, for, um, for books, I should plug my own book, Data Driven Law, which just came out, but uh, I think uh, uh, Kevin Kelly's book is like a million times better. It's a, it's a fantastic book. Uh, for movies on this topic, um, Ex Machina from a couple of years ago is pretty good. That's a, <laughs> that's a really uh, uh, interesting movie uh, sort of in that genre. And if you want like a kind of good music about this, it's not about it so much, but Radiohead's OK Computer uh, last year celebrated its 20th anniversary, and it has like just kind of a wonderful mellifluous dystopia that is uh, right on theme uh, even 20 years ago even today it really holds up the test of time well great ed uh you've given us kind of an eclectic uh, list there of uh of further things we can enjoy uh related to this uh the inevitable by kevin kelly uh your book uh data-driven law which i understand is going to be made into a movie also. Is that right? <laughs> God, I hope not. It's like the worst movie ever. <laughs> well, anyway, Ed Walters, thank you very much for appearing on Miranda Warnings. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't.